Very good morning, Amokyo family. Welcome to our online service. Now, if you have just joined us, you would like to know that we are preaching through the book of First Corinthians. In the first sermon, I taught the overarching theme of the book of First Corinthians is the family of God. How the family of God, how we as brothers and sisters in Christ should relate to each other. And in the second sermon last week, I taught that God's wisdom is completely different from uh, the world's understanding of wisdom. If any one of us think that we are wise, we should re-examine ourselves and see if we are truly wise and mature according to God's standard. Because God's wisdom is ultimately seen in Christ crucified, very different from the world. And we are called really to go low, to stay weak and to serve as Jesus did. So today we pick up from where we left off last week. We jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning at verse 6. Let me read the word of God to us. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. Come, let us pray. Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. Father, we ask that You send afresh Your Holy Spirit who will reveal and guide us into all truth. We commit this sermon into Your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also here in verses 6 to 10, Paul summarizes his earlier points and adds that God's wisdom was a mystery at first in the Old Testament until Christ was revealed. That's when this mystery was revealed, when Jesus appeared onto the scene and that the world's wisdom could not have understood it if not they would not have crucified Jesus. Then Paul goes on to quote Isaiah 64 verse 4 or verse 3 if you are referring to the Hebrew Bible. For those of you who are more uh, astute, uh, astute among you, more scholarly among you, we will realize that Paul did not quote Isaiah 64 verse 4 word for word. In fact, the Greek translation of this verse in circulation at the time also differs from the Hebrew manuscript. I don't want to confuse all of you with the technicalities, but here on the slide you can see the different uh, versions. One is the original Hebrew translated into English. Second is the Greek text at the time translated into English. And then finally, Paul's quote written in Greek originally, but also translated in English. So I've highlighted to you, to you where there are some differences. There are other smaller differences, but really the last line is significantly different. I'm not going to go into the scholarly debates of uh, why there are changes from Hebrew to Greek and how Paul seems to quote quite a different version altogether. All I want to say is that Apostle Paul, being a learned man, knows exactly what he's doing and he's definitely not twisting the scriptures. We need to understand that we cannot impose our modern rules of biblical interpretation and framework onto his ancient mind. The context really that is key is Isaiah 64. In Isaiah 64 verse 1, the prophet cries out, Rent the heavens and come down. Tear the heavens and come down. Now when Jesus was baptized, as Mark's gospel uh, records for us, chapter 1 verses 10 to 11, you can refer to it on your own time, the heavens were torn apart. And when the heavens were torn apart, the Holy Spirit descended 
upon Jesus like a dove. And then Jesus heard the voice of his heavenly Father, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I preached this sermon to our youth last Sunday. If you want a recording of the sermon, you can approach our pastoral team member, Gerald. Now, if you look at Isaiah 64, the whole chapter, the prophet acknowledges the problem of sin. We are like filthy rags. How can we ever be saved? That's the question, the cry out for mercy from the prophet Isaiah. And he prays that God, the porter, will have mercy on us, the clay. And so for Paul, when he quotes Isaiah 64 verse 4, he really has in mind the entire context, the passage of Isaiah 64. And Jesus then is God's definitive answer to our cry for mercy. The prophet Isaiah cried out, God have mercy on us. And God says, I will have mercy through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's answer to our cry for mercy. Because in Christ crucified, our sins are washed away. In Christ crucified, we encounter and receive the mercy of God. But there is more. I return to Mark chapter 1, verses 10 to 11 again. Who was the one who proclaimed love? Whose voice was it? It was God the Father. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so Paul changes the word wait in the Old Testament. It was wait to love because, get this, we no longer have to wait for God to show His mercy and His love. Jesus is the fullest demonstration of God's mercy. We no longer have to wait because He's already revealed. And that's why Paul changes this word so subtly but so important. Because now the onus is not for us to wait for God to reveal mercy. The onus is for us now to love Him. And then another question for reflection as we look at Mark's Gospel. Who was it who came down when the heavens were torn open? The answer is not our standard Sunday school book answer, Jesus. No, if you read Mark's account, it is the Holy Spirit who came down like a dove. It was the Holy Spirit who descended when the heavens were split open. Yes, Jesus came down from heaven, but that was some 30 years ago when he was born as an infant. But at this moment in his baptism, when the heavens were torn open, it's the Holy Spirit who comes down. And that is why Paul says in verse 10, these are the things God revealed to us by His Spirit. So we mustn't make this mistake or confusion. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who came down when the heavens were torn open. And so Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He changes, uh, he quotes Isaiah 64, but changes it ever so slightly to tell his readers that Scripture has already been fulfilled. Jesus Christ is God's wisdom previously hidden in the Old Testament as a mystery, but now fully revealed. And how is it revealed? Through the person called the Holy Spirit. If you are on site, I will have asked you to read through the next few verses, verses 10 to 15, and have you tell me what is the most repeated word in this text? The answer is Spirit. This word is repeated so many times in just a few verses. And so here in verses 10, to 15, Paul explains who the Holy Spirit is, what He does, and what it looks like for us when we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the sermon today will really focus on this aspect, how we can grow in our knowledge of the person of the Holy Spirit and in spiritual things. 
Let me begin with the second half of verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. A person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And get this, he cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, we have the mind of Christ. I know I have prayed earlier, but please allow me to pray again, as this is an extremely difficult passage, and only the Holy Spirit can grant us understanding. So come, let us pray again. O Holy Spirit, who reveals all things, we humbly come before you once again today. Reveal the truth of Scripture to us. Indeed, reveal the spiritual realities, because only you, God, can do it. Fill our mind afresh, Fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit so that we might truly have the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First of all, we need to answer this question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, the Spirit here in this text refers to God's Spirit. Otherwise, also known as the Spirit of God and in other Bible passages, the Spirit of Christ. Today, of course, in the church, we recall the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit the Holy Spirit. But you see, it really doesn't matter you call it the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they work together in unison always. It's the Trinity, right? They never disagree with each other. Three persons, but working together, and together they are one God. Now, the thing we need to recognize is that spirits, by their very nature, <coughs> are invisible to our ordinary naked eye. Angels, for example, are spiritual beings. They do not possess a physical body, but they have a spiritual body. It's just that we cannot see their spiritual body, or at least most of us can't. Some people I know, they can see the angels. Evil spirits are essentially fallen angels. And because spirits do not occupy space as physical matter do, like, you know, this pulpit here, multiple spirits can coexist in one space. Now take the case of the demoniac in the Gospels. When Jesus asked him, what is your name? The evil spirits collectively responded, we are legion. Now, a legion, a Roman legion, has typically 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. That's the size of a Roman legion. Can you imagine? This man had three to 6,000 spirits in him. In one man, three to 6,000. Why? Because spirits do not take up physical space. The thing we must know is that while there are many spirits in our world, only one spirit is spelled with the capital letter S, and that is God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because He is the ruler, sovereign ruler of all. Of course, we also have our individual spirits, our human spirit. Some preachers call it our spirit man, right? That's referring to our own individual spirits. The thing is, when we die, this physical body of ours will be left behind, but our spirit man, our spirit will go to God. 
we also need to understand, in biblical understanding, all other created things do not possess spirits. So there is no such thing as a sun spirit, a moon spirit, a tree spirit, a rock spirit. Created things do not have spirits. Other belief systems may attribute you know, spirits to these things, but not from the Bible's point of view. The Bible only teaches three categories of spirits. Number one is God's spirit. Number two, spiritual beings, angels or fallen angels. And number three, human spirits. Only three categories. Created things do not have any spirits. And so if there be any spirits dwelling in a particular object or place or person, it is because the fallen angels have chosen to dwell there or invited to dwell there for whatever reason. Now last year I saw God do a, a real powerful work of deliverance for a young man with multiple spirits in him. I'm hoping to get a testimony recorded and show to all of you one day. To highlight just one instance during the course of their deliverance, the young man actually at some point exclaimed that the Gabriel, the, sorry, the angel Michael was in the room at the time of deliverance. Even though physically for me, I saw nothing. I couldn't see the angel uh, Michael, but I could see the fear on the man's face. It's as if the evil spirits in this young man's uh, body, this evil spirit saw the angel Michael and was terrified. I could see the look of terror on this young man's face. In fact, later on, after the deliverance, he testified that he even saw Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army himself. And then when the evil spirits left him, he could feel these evil spirits leave him. So while we cannot see these spirits, they are nonetheless very real. The point we need to remember is that God's spirit is superior to all other spirits because he is not bound by space and time. He can be multiple places at once. All other spiritual beings, no matter how powerful they are in some way, they are limited. Just that they are not limited physically, but they are still limited in some way because they are not God. Only God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Only God's spirit has these attributes. You see Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the Holy Spirit was already there at the very beginning of Christian, hovering over the waters of the deep. God's Spirit was right there at the beginning of creation. Everything else was created by God, including the angels, and subsequently when they chose to fall, right, that's their choice. We must also understand that although the Spirit of God is invisible, He is not impersonal. He's not some impersonal force, you know, like how Star Wars speak of uh, the force. No, it doesn't work like that, okay? Yes, the Spirit of God may take on an appearance like a gentle dove, like as in the case of Jesus' baptism, or He may come with a great wind, like the day of Pentecost, or with tongues of fire even. But make no mistake, He is not impersonal. He is a person, the third person of the Trinity. So do not confuse what the Holy Spirit does with what or who He is. As a person, the Holy Spirit has emotions. He has a desire. He has thoughts. He has a voice. And He speaks, just often not audibly. We hear Him in our spirits. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 says that the Holy Spirit can also even be insulted. Can the force be insulted? No. But the Holy Spirit is a person. He can be grieved. He can even be insulted because He is a person. Just not physically. He is a spiritual being. 
Now, believers, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, believers who continue sinning willfully, blatantly, and consciously, without the slightest desire to repent and return to the Lord, are the ones who insult the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of redeeming us, changing our hearts to repent, to believe in Him, to believe in Jesus Christ, what He has done on the cross. And so if you consistently reject the work of the Holy Spirit, that is obviously the clearest indication that you are blaspheming and insulting the Holy Spirit. It is not those once off, you know, you say a swear word. Those are not the problem. It is when we consistently reject the work of the Holy Spirit by refusing to repent. That is the unpardonable sin. That is the unforgivable sin because you reject the very person who is trying to get you forgiven. How can you ever be forgiven then? And so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 7 warns us solemnly, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. So that's who the Holy Spirit is. He reveals God to us in Christ Jesus. Now with that, we come to the second question. What is the Holy Spirit's role? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, First of all, the Spirit of God searches all things, even the deep things of God, and knows all the thoughts of God. That is verse 11. Second, the Spirit of God reveals God and the things of God to us by giving us understanding. That is verse 12. You can refer to your own Bibles. And then number three, the Spirit of God helps us accept the things of God. Verse 14. In other words, when it comes to knowing God, the Holy Spirit is responsible for everything from beginning to the end. First of all, at the beginning, the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. We can say then, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the content, the thoughts of God. Second, the Holy Spirit grants us understanding. He is the channel, He is the conduit of the content. Third, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to accept these things that come from God, what we hear. And so the Spirit of God is not only responsible for the content or the channel, the conduit by which this content comes to us, He's also responsible for the consequence that we might believe in God. Look at verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Very strong words here. It is impossible to comprehend God, what God has done in Christ Jesus, unless the Holy Spirit works in us. This is the greatest work of the Holy Spirit, revealing Christ to us. So what is the implication of all these that I've taught you about the, who the person of the Holy Spirit is and what He does? What is the implication? So what? We return to verse 13. In the Greek text, there are three words used consecutively which sound very similar. Pneumatos, pneumatikois, pneumatika. Really similar, right? And they are used in succession, consecutively. And it's extremely difficult to translate this verse because these last, last two Greek words I've just read, they are basically adjectives without nouns. So NIV translates it as explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. But it can also be translated as interpreting spiritual truths to spiritual people or combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words or 
words taught by the Spirit who expresses spiritual truths in spiritual words. The point is, there are simply no nouns in the Greek text. It's spiritual things with spiritual things. Wow, right? That's the sense of it. It is important to point out to all of us that Paul does not use the word spiritual in an Eastern mysticism kind of way. Oh, let's be spiritual today. No, he doesn't use it in that way at all. Every time Paul uses this word, spiritual, he links it back to the Holy Spirit. Any spiritual truths, realities, spiritual words, whatever things that happen in the spiritual realm are connected to the Spirit of God. So regardless of the noun, it doesn't matter what it is. Scholars can make our best guess. But the point here is this. Every spiritual reality, word, experience is related and must be related to the Spirit of God Himself. And so in this passage, he points out that the gospel which has been brought to the Corinthians was by the Holy Spirit Himself. It could not be learned or communicated by human wisdom. And that's why Paul scolds them in the very first place for choosing preachers. Because they miss the point, it's not about the preacher. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals and guides us into all truth. And so again, I want to remind all of us that Christianity is not built upon some superstar idol or preacher, but really upon a personal relationship with God. So Paul's main idea is very clear. Spiritual things can only be understood spiritually because they are connected to the Holy Spirit. I say this again, spiritual things can only be understood and discerned spiritually because it's all tied in to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This means that we Christians, we are not dependent on a method or a preacher, but we are depending only on the Holy Spirit Himself. If we want to grow spiritually, we need to reconnect with this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is responsible for all things spiritual. Full stop. Everything that is spiritual is connected to the Holy Spirit. But there is one particular aspect which Paul ends off this segment. He says we have the mind of Christ. We can have the mind of Christ. It is a spiritual work, but we can have it. And how can we have the mind of Christ? By having the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to have the mind of Christ. The Corinthians prided themselves in some kind of special knowledge. The Greek word is Gnostic, you know, Gnosticism. In some kind of uh, special knowledge given to them. They also prided themselves in some kind of association with the big names of Christianity. But Paul rebukes them for having such carnal thinking and reminds them that they do not have the mind of Christ, which is ultimately seen in humility and love, which the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians will deal with. But here's the thing that important thing that we all need to understand. Paul does not say that only a few special privileged people have the mind of Christ. No. He says all who are wise and mature in the Lord, we will all possess the mind of Christ. John Wesley wrote that the feeling of the Holy Spirit is needed for every believer in order for us to have the mind of Christ. We need the feeling of the Holy Spirit afresh so that we can always possess the mind of Christ. You see, not everyone will have all the spiritual gifts, but everyone can have the mind of Christ. 
So how do we know we truly possess the mind of Christ? Sounds so abstract, right? Now, John Wesley lists several aspects, but I just want to highlight two. First of all, do we know deep down inside of us that we are children of God? Do we have the peace to know that we are truly saved, our sins are forgiven? Do we have the assurance of salvation that we are indeed children of God? I have met Christians who have been in church for decades and yet do not know that they are saved. And so whenever someone leads them in the sinner's prayer, they happily just pray along. The problem, I think, is not that they are unsaved, but that they do not experience the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Because when we are filled by the Holy Spirit, then we will know as Romans 8.16 declares that His Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. So let me ask all of us again today, do you know without a shadow of doubt that you are a child of God? Do you have the assurance of salvation? Do you have the peace of heart and mind that you are indeed truly saved, a child of God? If you do not experience that peace, then I ask you, hunger, thirst, not so much for salvation because I think you already understand that. The Holy Spirit has already revealed that to you. But hunger and thirst for the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Second thing that John Wesley says, how do we know we have the mind of Christ? The question is this, do we have the joy and the hope unspeakable? Do we have joy and hope unspeakable? That is, no matter what circumstances we are in, we never lose hope and we always have the joy of the Lord. Now, don't be mistaken. I think many of us have this wrong concept of heaven. Do you know heaven is a tremendously joyful place? I don't know what's your image of heaven. Maybe quiet and serene. But according to Jesus, every time there is a salvation, all heaven rejoices. I'm pretty sure there's salvation happening across the globe all the time. And I'm guessing that heaven then is a place filled with tremendous joy. More importantly, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why was Jesus able to endure the shame of the cross? Because he saw the joy that is set before him. He's going to return back to God the Father. It's a joyful thing. So as Christians, we too must possess this joy and hope. John Wesley had a fantastic framework for Christianity. I think we all need to recapture. As good Methodists, we need to recapture what he says. The Christian must be both holy and happy. Holy and happy. The two go hand in hand. Wesley wrote about this many times. Unfortunately, many of us in this world, we choose to be happy. We seek the things of the world in order to give us happiness. And then we corrupt ourselves. We are neither happy nor holy. That's the problem. But when we choose God's wisdom to crucify our flesh, to pursue holiness, that's when we have the happiness, the joy of the Lord that abides with us always. And so again, a time for reflection. If we are not humble, if we are not happy, if we are not holy as Christians, could it be then that we are living our Christian lives dependent on our own human wisdom, effort and strength? That we are trying to live 
our human lives dependent on the wrong source. The only way to live a victorious Christian life is through the Holy Spirit. Again, I want to encourage all of us to hunger and thirst afresh for a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit. I remember years ago, when I read the scriptures, John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in Him will have rivers of living waters gushing from, from their valleys. And so there I was in my own room doing this quiet devotion of my reading this passage. I was kneeling, kneeling, kneeling before the Lord with the Bible open. I closed my eyes, I was praying, and suddenly I felt out of my belly rivers of living waters. I, I was a bit scared because I felt like this water level was rising. I opened up my eyes, eh? It's still my bedroom, my double-decker bed is still there. But when I closed my eyes, I could feel the spirit, rivers of living water. And that was the turning point in my life. I knew without a shadow of doubt then that God's word was true, God was real. John Wesley too had his own time and moment, a moment in time when he knew that God was real. And that was the moment that his heart was strangely warm. Now, I'm not saying that you need to have the same experience as John Wesley or myself. My point is that we all need an encounter through the Holy Spirit, to encounter the person of the Holy Spirit. That's when suddenly we realize, hey, I am indeed saved. My sins are forgiven. I am a child of God. I have the joy, the peace. Everything that is promised in Scripture is given to us. That's the moment suddenly, wow, we understand everything. Why? Because as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, spiritual things can only be discerned spiritually. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. I pray for all of us that God will use this sermon to stir all our hearts to hunger and thirst afresh for this real encounter with the Holy Spirit. That we will know very clearly that indeed we possess the mind of Christ. Come, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that this sermon will go forth with power and conviction that comes from your Holy Spirit. It's not an easy sermon, and certainly we cannot comprehend it or live it out or even hunger and thirst for you unless, Lord, you Holy Spirit do this mighty work. And so, Father, I have been faithful to your word. I trust in you, Lord. You will do a mighty work in all who hear this word. Grant them a fresh encounter with you that they may know without a shadow of doubt that you are real. You will reveal to them spiritual truths. Give them spiritual gifts. Above all, help them once again to have the mind of Christ in all that they do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.